as human beings. We seem to have a pretty strong habit or pattern around wanting to understand why things happen. This is a pattern that has actually served us quite well. So many things have arisen out of this quest for understanding why. And yet we seem to be particularly curious about why things happen to me. And we're very practiced at this particular exploration. It seems especially in the Western culture with the way psychoanalysis has kind of permeated into our way of thinking. We all, or many of us at least, have a pattern of wanting to understand why we are the way we are, particularly through thinking about our history, the causes and conditions from our history. And the way we're practiced in this, the way we have practiced this, tends to be through a thinking about, through reflecting on, through intellectualizing why am I the way I am? Why do I react the way I react? Why do I have these habits and patterns? And we understand that through thinking back to our childhood or to ways that we related to people or situations that we were in. And this actually can be quite helpful at times. I'm not saying this is not helpful. For instance, if, um, if you're in a situation where you're meeting someone and there's a, a little bit of an emotional charge around this meeting, you might reflect on the fact that the person reminds you of somebody who you have a charge about and that there's no need to have that reaction with this particular person. So you, you can mitigate some of your reactivity through this kind of reflection, through this kind of thinking back about and understanding how our patterns and habits have come to be. And yet we sometimes, I think, perhaps mistakenly feel that we should be able to control these reactions just through this intellectual process. And often this doesn't work very well. We think that, well, because I know this person isn't the same person that I have the charge about from my history, I shouldn't have this feeling about that person. And yet we still do. We still have these reactions. So often this reflective process, this thinking back on why we are the way we are, doesn't touch into the deeper roots of our (coughs) suffering, of our reactivity. So it can help to explore a different way to do this, and this is what we're doing here. Exploring a different way to meet our suffering, not through thinking about, but through meeting moment by moment what we're experiencing.
So essentially, rather than thinking back about why we are the way we are, instead we look at what is happening moment to moment and come to an understanding through that process of looking at what is happening. And that's what I'd like to talk about this evening. I'd like to explore some words of the Buddha who suggested that wise attention is one of the ways to meet our experience using this tool of wise attention. And I referred to this sutta the other day, but I'll just read some of the words to you. He says, an untaught ordinary person does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, he attends to those things unfit for attention and does not attend to those things fit for attention. This is how he attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So these questions, the way the Buddha is saying uh, the untaught, ordinary person reflects unwisely, this is reflecting through the framework of who am I? What am I? How have I gotten here? What are the causes and conditions that have brought me here? How did I get here? It's reflecting through the framework of self and this penchant to ask why. Why am I the way I am? The Buddha goes on to say, a well-taught noble disciple understands what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, she does not attend to those things unfit for attention and attends to those things fit for attention. She attends wisely. This is suffering. She attends wisely. This is the origin of suffering. She attends wisely. This is the cessation of suffering. She attends wisely. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So I talked about this in terms of looking at experience through the framework of the Four Noble Truths. Not just thinking about, not not the thinking about process here, but the way this is phrased in the sutta. This is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. It's pointing us directly to look at the present moment and understand what is happening here and now. Is it suffering? Is it the cause of suffering? Is it the ending of suffering? Is it qualities that are being cultivated that are leading to the ending of suffering, the path leading to the ending of suffering? Looking at what is happening in the present moment through this lens of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha says this is wise attention. Rather than reflecting on why am I the way I am, look at what is this now? Is it suffering? Is it the cause of suffering? So this is pointing us directly into the present moment and is a great teaching for us. Suffering occurs in the present moment. It does not occur in the past or in the future. If we are suffering 
over something that happened in the past. What's happening is that there is a thought in the present moment about that past incident and the suffering about that incident is being reconstructed right here and right now. I had a great understanding into this. At one point, some years ago, I was in a play, an actress in a play. And one night on the stage during a performance, I forgot my line. And I tried ad-libbing so that the other actors on the stage would know that I'd forgotten my line and hopefully at some point would jump in and rescue me. So I said a few ad-libbed lines and at some point I ran out. (laughs) And nobody jumped in. (laughs) And there was this gaping silence and I looked out, you know, it's like the wall, this, this, the, the kind of in, invisible wall between the audience and the actors just dissolved. And I looked out and there were all these people out there waiting for me to say something. <laughs> it was very embarrassing. And for years after that, when that memory arose, the embarrassment came back with it. It just was like they were completely tied together. And then on one three-month retreat, that memory arose many, 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 many times. (laughs) And I really got to watch the process of this embarrassment, (laughs) which was created. The memory arose, and there was a reaction to that memory in the moment. It became really clear to me that the memory and the reaction and the embarrassment were different things. And it also became clear to me that the embarrassment wasn't somehow intimately or integrally, integrally related. I can't get it out. It wasn't integral to that memory that that embarrassment came up. There was a definite sequence in the mind This was, a good, this was a great revelation to see, actually, that that embarrassment wasn't somehow lurking, just waiting to pop up. It was actually recreated in the moment. Suffering is created in the moment. The conditions for experiencing that embarrassment did occur in the past. I was in the play. I forgot the line. But the suffering that was occurring on that three-month retreat was completely new, unrelated. Well, not unrelated, but created in the moment. And I can think about that now without feeling embarrassment. They are not, it's not the, it wasn't connected, that, that there's this, process by which the embarrassment was created from that memory. So not only does the suffering occur in the present moment, I think as this example points to also, the cause of the suffering, the wanting, also occurs in the present moment. So even though some of the events that we may be responding to or reacting to, happened in the past. The play happened in the past. The direct cause in the present moment of the suffering was a reaction in the present moment. The reaction to that memory. Shouldn't have forgotten that line. 
than not wanting to have forgotten that line. That clinging to, wish I was, had been a different person at that point. So the, the craving, the, the, the craving, the wanting also occurs in the present moment. Another example about this, at one point in the earlier days of my practice, I I had kind of gotten into the practice through the breakup of a relationship and the emotions, the strong emotions that were coming up around that breakup. And the, the practice that I engaged with was very much attending to my emotions in daily life. So I was just noticing how my emotional world was being experienced. And one of the emotions that seemed to come up regularly was loneliness. No particular surprise. And one pattern that I noticed is that every night when I went to bed, loneliness came up. Again, this didn't particularly surprise me. I thought I understood why I was lonely at that moment. It didn't surprise me. I wasn't even thinking about, well, why is this coming up? I mean, it seemed so obvious why it was coming up when I was going to bed at night. And yet I was just observing the emotions, just observing. That's what my practice was at that time. So I was just observing the loneliness. And at some point in this, weeks-long exploration of looking at the loneliness, I began to notice that the loneliness arose, it began, while I was setting my alarm clock. I thought that was kind of odd. it, It was so clear. I was setting the alarm clock and boom, the loneliness. So it seemed like there was some connection, but I didn't, I didn't know what the connection was. So I just kept observing and began noticing the pattern of the um, loneliness arising when I set this alarm clock. One night, I think because my interest was somewhat piqued, I was setting my alarm clock. And while I was setting the alarm clock, it was a little digital alarm clock. While I was setting the alarm clock, an image arose about my ex-boyfriend. And we were together in Disneyland, looking up at a marquee that had a digital clock on it. So I could see that there was a link between the memory and my physical sense impression. And I could also see that the loneliness that was arising was a reaction to that memory. Something along the lines of, oh, poor me, you know, I'll never, I'll never have such wonderful times as we had at that time in Disneyland. (laughs) The loneliness arose that night and, you know, but I was kind of amazed. I was kind of amazed to see that the thing that amazed me about seeing that was that it wasn't the why of why I was lonely was not related to what I thought it was at all. It didn't particularly have to do with going to bed, going to bed alone at night. It had to do with a reaction to a memory about my ex-boyfriend. It was triggered by a physical sense impression. So that was kind of amazing to me that the mind could see that so clearly. But what amazed me even more was that the next night when I went to bed, setting the alarm clock, the memory obviously came back. It had become conscious to me. But the loneliness didn't come back. It was as if how seeing how the, the loneliness had been created in this process had somehow dismantled it. And I didn't know how that worked or why that had happened. But it, was, it seemed to be related to having clearly seen 
the links and the cause, the causes in the present moment of how the suffering of the loneliness was created. Now, I'm not saying I didn't get lonely again, but the regular every night going to bed lonely stopped. That was a great relief. It was the little moment of seeing. So in the present moment, we can see how suffering is put together. We can see how our reactivity is created. We can see the causes and conditions for it arising. And this, seeing the present moment causes of our suffering, how it's created in the present moment, this seems to have a deeper impact on the underlying tendencies towards suffering. So I hope this distinction between the why of the present moment and the why of history is clear. That there are the causes and conditions from history that things happened. But the present moment suffering is occurring directly in the present moment through things that are happening directly in the present moment. And these things can be witnessed by just looking at what is happening. So this exploration of what is happening, this is our path, this is our practice, to just have the courage to meet what is happening. So this is a lot of the instructions we've been talking about, meeting, meeting experience directly underneath the layer of concepts, meeting our body sensations, meeting our emotions, the feelings. These are things we often want to understand the why of. An emotion arises. Why am I feeling that emotion? Just looking at what? Here and now, in this retreat particularly, we have this great opportunity to just look at what, let go of the why, and just look at what is happening. Images, thoughts, emotions also arise in the present moment and can be experienced as just simply what is arising in the present moment. So there's a distinction in a way between seeing an arising of a thought or arising of of an image or a, a mind state as something that's just happening in the present moment and between, there's a distinction between that and kind of seeing our experience through that thought, seeing our experience through that mind state. So in terms of supporting our ability to see thoughts, images, as arising experiences in the present moment, one of the tools that has been most helpful for, for me is to acknowledge the arising of that thought through, the, through a noting of how that thought is appearing. Now, what I mean by that is thoughts will appear to us through some... We have some experience that we consider a thought. Sometimes it sounds like we're talking to ourselves, that we, we hear our voice in our minds. Sometimes it sounds like somebody else is talking to us. Somebody it sounds sometimes it sounds like there's a radio playing and it's somebody else we don't even know and they're talking about things we don't even care about. <laughs> in these experiences the thought is arising 
almost as if it's being heard. And so we can use that to support, to support us connecting with the how of that thought, the how that thought is being known. Note hearing. Or sometimes thoughts arise as images. We see an image. I have found using seeing as a note when I'm experiencing thoughts in that way, it directly points to the process by which that thought is coming into being through the seeing realm. Even though I know it's not that I'm actually seeing when I use that. I know it's not that I'm actually hearing. But it just seems to point to the thought as an arising experience, as a what is happening in in the moment, as opposed to the content of the thought or believing the thought. So that helps, can help us to connect to that part of our experience also is just an arising what. What's happening right now? There's an image arising. Seeing. One of the ways or another one of the ways to look at what's happening in the present moment. And sometimes we can miss certain things that are happening in the present moment. The attitude that Rebecca was speaking about the other morning, the attitude at which we are looking at our experience, sometimes is a a major part of what is happening that is unnoticed by us, that we're looking at our experience through a lens of frustration, or we're looking at our experience through a lens of wanting. And it's not really noticed that we're doing that. So this practice or the tool, a tool that can support us in helping to reveal other things that might be going on is to simply check in. What's the attitude? What's my relationship to this experience? as a means to help us widen the lens to see more of what is happening in the present moment. This points to this seeing this additional lens through which we're looking at experience or a kind of a layer, a larger layer of experience that perhaps hadn't been noticed, points to the way that we do sometimes recognize that our experience is layered. That habits are layered on top of other habits and emotions on top of beliefs and other emotions. So there's kind of a layering process that often we experience and we, we see, we begin to really see that in the present moment, looking to through to our experience in the present moment. We see this layered nature of our experience. For instance, you know, you might notice a a kind of a a common pattern arising that you see that there's there's a kind of a, a fear very deep and then there's a kind of an anger on top of that fear and then a resistance on top of that anger as layers of our experience. So having a sense that there are these layers to our experience, we often, I think, I've seen in my own mind and in talking to people, we often think that the way to meet that experience or that the most important part of meeting that experience is somehow to get to that middle layer. If there's fear in the middle and then there's anger, Uh, kind of outside of that, and then there's resistance outside of that. What what I really need to pay attention to is the fear right in the middle. That's the way we think. Because we we kind of understand that that's kind of at the core. But jumping over the other things that are actually happening in the present moment, the resistance, the anger, diving into the middle somehow, is jumping over what's actually going on the resistance, the anger. 
So it's not so helpful, actually, to dive into the middle, to even though we might have seen this pattern many times and know that there's a kind of a fear underneath. If we are doing that and ignoring these other things that are kind of in the outer layers, it's kind of almost a violence to our minds to try to force ourselves into something when there's these other things that are actually happening. So it's helpful to just notice the obvious of what is happening in the present moment. Just what is obvious. What's obvious in the body, what's obvious in our thoughts, what's obvious in our emotions. What's obvious is resistance. Resistance is what's happening right now. There's no need to push in to some idea of what we think is happening underneath. I might have used this image or analogy in an early talk I gave, but Saida Upandita talks about investigation as being like a process of polishing a bowl, rubbing. So taking a soft cloth and rubbing is how you polish a bowl. So this is how we explore our experience. We meet it with this kind of gentle, soft contact rather than with a chisel, trying to chip it apart. So the continuous contact, the continuous contact of our mindfulness with our experience, continuous contact of the what is happening, begins to kind of melt the layers, can reveal layers underneath other layers. Just noticing moment by moment what is happening. I had a, uh, an experience of this, seeing how these layers can just be so layered on one retreat at Spirit Rock. I was doing walking meditation, and during this retreat, it was a long retreat, and I had been doing quite a number of long retreats at that time, and I was experiencing a lot of doubt about, a self-doubt about, should I be doing this? Should I be doing all of these long retreats? And the story was kind of like, well, I'm not worthy or somehow, you know, something like that. And it, during one walking meditation, uh, this pattern, the, the, this doubt just kept coming up. Should I be here? Should I be doing this? And it was so strong, I realized th- that I, I needed to explore it. And so in the walking, I began by stopping and recognizing, okay, the thoughts are not present right now. I'm just meeting the experience. And my intention in this walking was to stop as soon as I saw any thoughts arising. As soon as I noticed a thought coming up, I'd stop and kind of take note of that thought. And as I did this, there was a kind of a These layers, several layers, were kind of revealed to me as I just kept looking at what's the thought that's happening right now? Notice that, keep going, and then, and what's the thought that's arising? I started by noticing these thoughts about doubt, doubt about doing these long retreats. And then the next uh, kind of thought that was obvious when I stopped and checked into the thought, it was, it was um, fear somehow that I'm not good enough, that I'm not measuring up. I'm not a good enough yogi to be doing all of these long retreats. And then underneath that, or the next thought that came up was something like, I'm not worthy to be dedicating my life to this. Not worthy to leave my job to do this. I had kind of 
I was taking a long sabbatical. I wasn't. I was living on savings. Not worthy to leave my job for this. The next thought was my insecurity. What's going to happen about my financial situation? And underneath that was an aversion. It's like this is not acceptable. I have to have control over my finances. And underneath that was this sense of vulnerability. When, that, when I hit the vulnerability, I could just be there with that. It's like, yeah, this is true. This is true. We're vulnerable. So I didn't really know that this whole pattern of thought around um, I shouldn't be doing long retreats had anything to do with thinking about my financial situation until I started looking at moment by moment what is happening, what thoughts are arising, what's what's going on moment by moment, looking at experience. So having our sen- the sense of these layers of experience, it's often helpful to not make assumptions about what might lie underneath the layers. That is kind of getting into the territory of why again, in a way. You know, what's, what's happening? You know, I'm, I'm feeling disconnected and lonely. Um, and, and what underlies that? You know, you know, why am I feeling disconnected and lonely? To make to making assumptions about that—that's that's generally not so helpful. These assumptions may or may not be true. It's quite amazing how our minds, if we make assumptions about things and believe them we will start finding out that they are true. We will gather the evidence to prove that they're true, whether or not they actually are true. So they become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way. If, if we are looking at our experience through assumptions, so if you're noticing, if you notice assumptions, the um, in your, in your experience, at least try to hold them lightly. Kind of like the assumption that I made about going to bed lonely at night. You know, I thought I knew why that was happening, but I was willing to just meet the experience as it arose. We do have a tendency as human beings to create meaning, and I think that this is where this tendency to create assumptions comes from. We want to understand why, what things mean. I'm having this emotion, and this means. I'm having this thought, and this means. And again, these, this can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, this kind of creation of meaning. There's a beautiful poem about this, the way we tend to create meaning. This is a poem by Fernando Pessoa, a Portuguese poet who wrote under various heteronyms. He created different identities and wrote under different identities. And this identity was his Alberto Cairo identity. The mystery of things, where is it? Why doesn't it come out to show us at least that it's mystery? What do the river and tree know about it? And what do I, who am no more than they, know about it? Whenever I look at things and think about what people think of them, I laugh like a brook cleanly plashing against a rock. For the only hidden meaning of things is that they have no hidden meaning. It's the strangest thing of all stranger than all poets' dreams and all philosophers' thoughts, that things are really what they seem to be, and there's nothing to understand. Yes, this is what my senses learned on their own. 
Things have no meaning. They exist. Things are the only hidden meaning of things. We also have a strong tendency to create meaning about our practice. Things happen in our practice, and this means we find ourselves not wanting to practice. This means I'm a failure. This means I really don't want to practice. This means I'm not serious about practice. Not wanting to practice is simply a mind state that's arising in the present moment. That's all it is. It was such a huge relief to me when I recognized, oh, not wanting to practice is arising. It doesn't have to have any meaning attached to it. It's just not wanting to practice. It's a really great mind state to learn to recognize and just note it. Another thing we make meaning about is our wandering mind. We're going along and practicing, and suddenly our mind starts wandering way more than it did yesterday. And we think it means perhaps something like, well, I must not be trying hard enough. This means I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not trying diligently enough. I had this experience happen to me on a one three-month course where the practice had been moving in the direction of more and more clarity and more ability to stay connected with the breath. It had been going quite well, I thought. And then one day I sat down and all I was doing was thinking. It's like, wow. Fortunately, I had had enough experience not to think or make the meaning, this means I'm a failure, this means I'm not trying hard enough. I decided to just look at what was happening. What is actually happening? How are these thoughts coming to be? And what I began to notice, sit down, pay attention to the breath. I could connect with the breath very clearly for about a second. And then I noticed that the sensations of the breath got really subtle, so subtle that I could hardly notice them anymore. And that's when the mind would wander. This kind of thing actually happens to us a lot, I think, that as our practice begins to deepen, There's a kind of a, we, we're kind of having an assumption about what we're paying attention to. This is what my breath feels like, and this is how I pay attention to it. And yet, as we pay attention to the breath or other experience, that experience can shift. It can change. And if we are trying to pay attention in a certain way, then there's going to be a disconnect, and the mind may wander. This is what I found in this experience. Just trying to meet that subtlety of experience. What I what I learned in subsequent retreats was that it doesn't have to be a problem. I was actually trying to touch, like what is what are those subtle sensations? What is that? What is that feeling? How is the breath so subtle? I was I was trying to force the mindfulness into that. And that wasn't so helpful either. But at some point, one teacher, I, I think it was Upandita, when I reported that the breath was getting so subtle that I couldn't notice it, he said, you can just notice, notice subtle breath. It's like, oh, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> and so I began using that as the note, subtle. Breath is subtle. I didn't actually have to try to figure out what the subtlety was. It's just subtle experience. So sometimes 
when the mind is wandering. Now it may mean that you're getting caught in something or other. Check into your own experience. Sometimes if, if the mind has been settling for a while and suddenly starts wandering again, at least in my experience, it has signaled sometimes a shift in the practice. There's something new to, to connect to, something new that's happening that the mind just isn't quite familiar with connecting with. So letting go of the idea that it means something, either that it means the practice is going well or the practice is going horribly, and just noticing what is happening. Be on the lookout for this means in your thoughts and just connect with what is happening no matter what. The way through our experience is just to notice what, what, what is happening. It's very simple. It's not so easy, but it's very simple. This practice is, there's really only one instruction. That's all we do, whether we're at the, whether, where, wherever we are in our practice, just meeting what we are noticing in the present moment and noticing how we're relating to it. It can be that simple. Looking at the moment, looking at what is happening, as I pointed to earlier, it begins to reveal the cause and effect nature of the unfolding of our experience. And this happens kind of automatically in a way. We don't have to try to see the cause and effect experience just by seeing a thought arises, a, 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 a memory arises, a thought about that memory, a belief about that memory, and a reaction to that. Just by watching what is happening, we understand how the, cause, the causes and conditions are in play in the present moment. So we don't really have to try to see the why of the present moment. We just need to connect with what, 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 what is happening. I'd like to um, kind of give an example from my own practice that ties a lot of these types of what's and why's together, the different kinds of why's, the why of history, the intellectualizing why, the why of the present moment. And it's a pattern that, for me, was a very strong pattern that happened repeatedly. It was a strong pattern, I think, from, from very long ago in my past. And it was a pattern of self-hatred and unworthiness. And I had a sense, kind of the intellectual understanding. I had done some therapy and had talked about this a lot, done the intellectual thinking about why, why this pattern of self-hatred was there. And I had, through that process, come to the understanding that there was a particular relationship that it was probably connected to. So I didn't have any direct evidence for that, but it just made sense. You know, it made sense based on what the therapist said and what I had said. It just, it just seemed to make sense. So that's kind of that intellectual understanding that we often meet our experience with. And then on one three-month course, I got to watch this pattern. I had been watching the pattern on many retreats, but on one three-month course, it was particularly strong. And at some point, I realized, you know, I didn't want this. I I, I fought it for a while. I mean, you've got a long time on a three-month course, right? You can think, yep, I don't need to pay attention to that. I'm going to pay attention to arising and passing. I'm going to pay attention to just physical sensation. I'm not going to pay attention to this feeling of self-hatred. But it was pretty strong. It kept really coming back. So it's like, okay, <laughs> it's kind of like I surrender. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna. This is what my retreat's about, you know. It's like somehow I had the belief, a meaning. I put some meaning on it that this was a lesser kind of retreat. You know, this retreat about self hatred. But I did just start observing it, watching the experience as it arises, as it arose. 
And at some point, and I don't even remember clearly how this connection was made, but there was a very clear connection made to that relationship. Perhaps it arose as a, a, a thought in the moment, clearly linking. This is some, sometimes how this connection can get made, that these, uh, we can see how a history is connected to a present moment pattern through an arising of a memory in the present moment and seeing so clearly that pattern unfolding as a result of that memory. I don't remember how it happened for me in this particular case, but I did see very clearly that the pattern of self-hatred in my experience was directly related to this relationship. And in that moment, there was a huge kind of release and opening of compassion for this person and the relationship. And there was a kind of a sense of understanding that happened. Now I call this, I would call this a kind of a psychological insight. It was really clear to me how my history connected with the arising pattern in the present moment. And there was an opening around it. It did feel like there was a shift somehow. And actually I thought, oh, maybe that's taking care of the self-hatred. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was actually shocked when it came back the next time. <laughs> oh, I thought I was done with this. And actually, you know, that insight, that psychological insight, you know, the strength of the self-hatred was just as strong. I was shocked. But there was a shift. And the shift was that what I think that psychological insight had helped me to see was that the pattern in my own mind, the pattern of self-hatred, was related to causes and conditions. It wasn't my fault. It was kind of just a product of the relationship and me and that person and the way we interacted. And so there was a little bit of a lessening of the me in the pattern. But the pattern kept coming up very strongly. The shift that I noticed after that point was that it was no longer quite so scary to be with it. So I could actually meet the feeling much more clearly. I could start really looking at the what of that self-hatred without flinching. And one night, you know, the pattern would come and go on the retreat. It would be there sometimes. It would not be there sometimes. And on one, on, uh, one Dharma talk, actually it was a Q&A Joseph was doing, he answered a question about particularly sticky patterns. And he gave an instruction that had been helpful for him that I had not heard before. And I think he talked about it in the last half of the retreat. I'm not sure if he's talked about it in this half. But the instruction was that when there's a really particularly sticky pattern, that it can be helpful to note, make a double note on the the arising of the experience. And the note would be contact, that is the actual meeting of the experience, followed by the feeling tone of that contact. And so I had heard this instruction, and as I was leaving the meditation hall that evening, and walking up the stairs out of the walking room, the self-hatred descended, and I felt powerless to do anything about it. But I had this really strong determination to just meet it. So I went back to my room, and I sat, and I just paid attention to that experience. And I used this double noting that Joseph had suggested in the talk. Every time there was any kind of a movement towards, you're no good, a thought like that arising in my mind, contact, unpleasant. I just note it as soon as I could, just trying to meet the arising of that experience with contact, unpleasant. Just noting it, noting it, noting it. At some point that evening, the arising of that experience, noted clearly, was just seen as a thought. 
This is just a thought. This is just an empty phenomenon arising in the mind. In that moment, the self-hatred vanished and bliss flooded the body. The next thought was, ah, yes, and this too is impermanent. (laughs) And the bliss kind of diminished, and there was just much more of a sense of balance, a sense of, there was a kind of a recognition in that moment that there'd been an insight, but that it didn't necessarily mean that the pattern was gone, that it had been seen through in that moment. And yet, that moment actually had a very deep power of cutting into that pattern. I would have described it as a very deep rut in my mind before that moment. After that moment, it was more like the rut was a a wide bowl. It was very easy to get out of it. I attribute this to actually this moment of seeing you're no good as a thought and a belief arising in the moment. There's the thought you're no good and there's a belief in that thought. This is actually an interesting phenomenon to check into thoughts versus beliefs. The thought you're no good can arise in the mind and without any belief that thought vanishes. So that's what's happening. That's the way I experience this now. Those thoughts still arise. There's not belief in them. And that, I think, is what allowed that uh, rut to become a wide, more of a wide bowl. So looking into the what of experience can cut very deeply into these conditioned patterns that we have. It can take a lot of courage to stay with our present moment experience in the face of strong suffering. And yet this is the way that the mind can understand and let go of that suffering. And this same practice of just meeting what is happening not only frees us from the reactivity that we're so tossed about by, but it also allows us to deeply see into the nature of experience. That moment of seeing, this is just a thought, that was a Vipassana insight a Vipassana insight into just an arising experience. That's the insight. Those are the insights that cut into our patterns and habits. Those are the insights that free us. And it doesn't matter what you're paying attention to. It really doesn't matter. We think we have to somehow get rid of all of these patterns of self-hatred. I certainly thought I did in order to have a, you know, deep insight. I thought that self-hatred has to be gone first. But no, it can come in the midst of that pattern. Deep recognition into impermanence, unreliability, not self. These are the insights that free us just by noticing what is happening moment by moment. Let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.